Good morning, Four Oaks. Pastor Paul here. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. We continue our trek through the Gospel of Matthew, and we have been in the Sermon on the Mount these last number of weeks. And one of the interesting things about the Sermon on the Mount, and, and scholars have noted this, not only is Jesus actually on a physical mountain or probably just a, a hillside, not only is he on a mountain delivering this most famous of all sermons ever delivered, but if you look at the literary structure of the Sermon on the Mount, it's literally structured like a mountain. And let, let me explain what I mean. You'll remember that this sermon began with an ascent. And this ascent was an invitation from Jesus to us that if we want to be happy, if we want to live the good life, if we want to flourish, then we need to align our lives with the values and priorities of the kingdom. And, and we've seen that this, this is all hinged on this concept of righteousness or wholeheartedness. Not a righteousness that secures God's favor, but it's a righteousness, a wholeheartedness that begins to reflect the idea that who we are on the inside is the same as who we are on the outside. And as those things converge, as they get closer, Jesus says that is where true happiness is found. And the pinnacle of the Sermon on the Mount, as we've seen, is in fact the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says if you want to know the pathway to righteousness, it comes in prayer, it comes in communion with me. And this is where we've been the last several weeks. But now we begin the descent down the far side of the mountain. And, and here's Jesus' interest here in the rest of the sermon. It's for us to understand how this communion with Christ, how this wholeheartedness begins to take root into the very nuts and bolts and fabric of our lives. And so Jesus is going to go pointing his gospel stick right into the middle of our guts in a whole variety of ways. He's going to talk to us about anxiety, about judging others, about what it means to follow the golden rule. And of course, today he's addressing everyone's favorite topic for someone else to meddle in. And of course, we're talking about money. What does it mean, Jesus wants us to attend to, what does it mean to pursue a wholeheartedness when it comes to our material possessions? I remember when we moved to Tallahassee over a quarter of a century ago, I was a grad student at FSU teaching an undergraduate class called Family Relationships, F80-2230. Some of you may have taken that course. Some of you may have been in one of my classes, and if you were, I know whether or not you signed the role and left. I know that. And I've been holding on to that all these, all these years. But students would come into my office during office hours, and invariably, they wouldn't want to talk about the theory of the family or the sociological construct. What they wanted to talk about was what? Their grades. And typically, it went something like this. How do I get a good grade? I don't have a good grade right now, and it's your fault. That's typically the, how, how that conversation went. And of course, being the wise, patient sage that I was, I would walk people through the syllabus, and it was very simple, very straightforward. It was not a, it was not a pre-med class. This wasn't chemistry. This was, this was relationships 101. If you read the chapters, did the quiz, did the test, you were probably going to do pretty well. And I would do the same speech over and over, 
And yet that same person would come back to the office three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, repeatedly. And it finally it dawned on me what was happening here. It's not that people didn't understand what I was saying. It's just they didn't like what I was saying. And they thought, if I just keep asking the same question over and over again, maybe I'll get a different answer. But the problem was not that there wasn't clarity. It was very clear what they were supposed to do. And I, to be honest, I felt like that undergraduate student coming to the text of God's word this week and studying it. That in reality, as we're going to see, the, the passage is not complicated. In fact, it is so straightforward. It is so simple. We look at it and say, surely there's got to be something else. And as I prayed many times over my life, and I'm sure maybe most of you have as well, God, how do you want me to, to be generous? How do you want me to steward my resources? What does it mean to be kingdom-minded with my possessions and time? I'll come to passages like this, and it's as clear as can be, but yet I find myself coming back over and over again saying, God, is that what you really said? The problem is not that I don't understand what God's word says. The problem is that I do. And that's where we have, as 21st century affluent Americans, to say, we trust Christ. Christ, when you say that the path to flourishing, to wholeheartedness, to, to joy, to happiness, is found in prioritizing the values of the kingdom over those of this world, we want to believe that. But it's so hard because everything in our culture mitigates against that kind of self-awareness. Everything in our life says we don't have needs, or if we have needs, we can, we can charge those needs. Somebody else will do this for us. We have our health. We have, we, we have our pathways. But every, everything in this culture conspires to, sh to, to communicate to us that what we have in this life is where true Happiness is found, and it takes the act and the walk of faith to say, Jesus, we want to believe it. Help our unbelief. And boy, do we need it when it comes to this area. I need it. And so we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24 this morning. It's a short passage, but it's very clear. So I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word this morning. Jesus is speaking, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Let's pray. Lord, these are... Pretty clear words, they're, they're, a, they're a gospel gauntlet thrown down by you. And so, Lord, help us now, give us the grace to know what they mean for us. 
to know how to apply our hearts to them. Lord, how to honor you with all that we have and all that we do. Lord, that's our prayer. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Title of this message is Treasure in Teleos. And if you've been with us, you know Teleos, that's the word for righteousness, wholeheartedness. How does our treasure relate to our happiness? And something highly unusual for this morning, I have four, count them, four points. Okay. Um, here we go. Money as maxim. Money as a mirror. Money as malformation. I had to dig deep for that one. And then finally, money as master. All right, so let's look at money as maxim. And the maxim is crystal clear. It's laid out for us in verse 19. Jesus says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Why? Okay, that, that's the, why should we not lay up treasures on earth? Why should we lay them up in heaven? And here it's, it's, it's expressed in a, it's a spiritual maxim pressed expressed in monetary terms, it's very simple because they don't last. Who, who, would, who, who would do something that has no lasting impact? It's like have, having Confederate money in your IRA, right? Not going to do you any good. Why would you do that? Jesus says that's about as wise as storing up for yourself treasures on earth versus treasures in heaven. Now, now that's the maxim. Okay, that's the truth, and we're going to look at the rest of the sermon. What does that mean exactly? How do we flesh it out? What does it look like in our lives? Now, that word treasures, interesting word. It's not the word for money. The word for money, look down in verse 24, where Jesus says, you cannot serve God in money. That word is mammon, right? Filthy lucre, mammon. Well, what's interesting about that term, there, he could have used that term, Right? For treasures, but he but he doesn't. The word that he uses for treasures literally means anything of great value, something that has some sort of ultimate meaning or purpose for us. Now, certainly that includes material possessions, but it's obviously much more. Listen to what Martin Lloyd Jones says about this. You see, and he's commenting on this verse, it is almost endless. Not only love of money, but love of honor, the love of position, the love of status, the love of one's work in an illegitimate sense. Whatever it may be, anything that stops with this life and this world, these are the things of which we must be wary lest they become our treasure. Treasure here means, yes, it's not less than material possessions, but it can be much more. Anything we hold of ultimate value whether it's time, possession, significance, status. Now that word lay up, do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth, it means to acquire something, to, to, to heap up into a pile, to secure something for oneself. And there's a couple things we need to say about this right off. Acquiring in and of itself is not bad. In fact, God has made all of us acquirers. We are storers. We are investors by our nature. That's who we are. When God commissioned us to take dominion over the earth, we were created to be builders. We were created to be investors of people, places, and things. So the issue is not 
are we acquiring we are and that's good the question is what are we acquiring and why that's most important we are acquiring it you see the treasures of earth we don't need to think specifically about a material thing necessarily right we're all the things that god has given us food family the earth recreation hobby what is what does paul tell us he tells us all good things come from above but a treasure of heaven becomes a treasure of earth when it becomes the ultimate thing it becomes the thing that drives us that animates us one pastor said when you take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing it what it becomes a bad thing this is what jesus is orienting to orienting our hearts towards he, he wants us to know that there is a particular kind of acquiring or acquisition that has eternal reward that has eternal significance and there is another kind of acquisition that will pass away when you do it will be here today gone tomorrow see god is not necessarily calling all of us to be a monk or to embrace poverty theology or to sell all of our possessions although he might for some but what god is really calling us to jesus says is to be stewards to understand that we are treasure acquirers it's just what kind of treasure and why we're acquiring it here's a here's a great verse from from paul in first timothy chapter 6. you've all heard it many times paul here doesn't tell people not to be rich he doesn't say they're evil for being rich just listen to what he says as for the rich in this present age charge them what not to be haughty nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches but on god who richly provides us with everything to enjoy they are to do good to be rich in good works to be generous and ready to share thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future he's talking about eternity so that they may take hold of that which is truly life it's almost like the apostle paul had heard the teachings of jesus isn't that amazing tongue-in-cheek yes he had right moth and rust doesn't make any sense to us right unless you're like me and you leave your power tools out in the yard and it rains okay but other than that most of us have not had any exposure to mothballs unless you were born before 1970 and you were in your attic at your grandmother's house right you know all about mothballs well remember there was no such thing as digital currency there was no such thing as 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 your financial future floating around in the clouds in the ancient world literally what you owned and what was of value to you is what you could place your hands on what what you could accumulate what you could store what you could actually go see it reminds me when i would come home after after school when i was little and watch reruns on tbs we would watch the beverly hillbillies i mean say what you want to say tennessee i get it the whole thing right and i remember jeff clampett had no idea what millions of dollars meant but he called mr drysdale remember that the banker and he said uh hey, I want to see all the money I have. Like, I literally, I want to see it, millions of dollars. 
And Richard Drysdale struggled to explain he couldn't bring over the millions of dollars because he didn't have the millions of dollars and Jeb thought he stole it. Oh, it was, it was a great episode, right? Well, that was what it meant to accumulate in the ancient Middle East. And everyone knew clothes were a particular value. And if you didn't protect those, think about Joseph's many-colored, multicolored coat, right? What counted is what you could put your hands on. And everyone knew in that time, life was and possessions were like water in your hand. They were there today and they were gone tomorrow. And physical things are like that. Treasures on earth are like that. And it's a painful lesson when we're reminded of it, right? I just saw a, a movie, streamed it online, called Blackberry. It's the rise and the catastrophic fall of the Blackberry company who made the Blackberry phones. Now, just a quick show of hands, how many of you owned a Blackberry? That is an embarrassment, but yes, okay. <laughs> and let's be honest, those of you who had Blackberries, you loved your Blackberry. You loved the way it punched the, the little keys. And this is the story about the rise and fall of, of, of the Blackberry phone. And it is, it's fascinating. And what it is really is a morality tale because they were accumulating almost untold market share of the smartphone industry. And their stock value was up 400% and things were blowing and going. But the pivotal point in the movie is where they're all gathered around they're a bunch of nerds, okay? Let's be honest. They're a bunch of nerds. They're all gathered around, and they're watching. It's 2009. Steve Jobs gives up to give his annual Apple address to his stakeholders. He says, we want to introduce a new piece of technology to you. And within the space of hours, BlackBerry was done. It was the iPhone was forever going to change. And make no mistake, there'll be some, I hate to tell you Apple people, there'll be something to supplant that one day. That's the nature of earthly reward. Now, now what is heavenly reward? What is that? Let me just say, after extensive research and looking at multiple commentaries, I can tell you I have no idea, okay? And most of the commentators don't, but let me say this. What is the thing in this life you most fear losing? And I would venture to say, for most of us, it's not a thing. It's not a place. It's not a house. It's not a possession. It's a person. It's a person. And ultimately, we know that the Word of God and, and people are the only things that will last forever. And I don't know what reward in heaven looks like, but I wonder, I just wonder if it's tied up in this idea that when we see so-and-so, we'll say, I'm here by the grace of God because of that person. That person played a part in my story. By the grace of God, I was able to play a part in that story. And we don't have monuments to the past. We have living people for all eternity who are testimonies to the grace of God. Is it going to work like that? I, I don't know. I just remember a, a Young Life fundraising bank. Young Life is a ministry to high school and college students. And my wife, Susan, her parents were saved through Young Life, through a, an adult weekend at Windy Gap in North Carolina. 
And as part of this fundraiser, they had people who had been involved in Young Life to hold up a sign to say, Here, here's the part Young Life played in my life. And they brought Susan on at the very end because it was, it was a powerful, my family was saved through this ministry. And ultimately, I just have to think that because people are eternal, God's eternal, that this is, this is what's at stake when we think about leveraging our resources, not for heaven, not for earthly gain, but for heavenly gain. Now, we're going to continue to unpack that. Let's keep moving, though. Money is a mirror. What do we mean by money is a mirror? Look at verse 21. This is so simple. We're not going to spend a ton of time on it. I think you'll get it. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, Jesus is drawing a connection between our treasure and our hearts. Now, our hearts, in our 21st century way of thinking about hearts, we think about feelings. Well, Pastor Paul, I'm, I'm, I'm an intellectual, and my wife is a feeler, and that's why she loves people and I don't, or whatever, right? And let the hearer hear. That's not what Scripture means when it talks about the heart. The heart is not simply what you feel. The heart is who you are. The heart is the most deeply rooted part of your being. It's who you really are at the very bottom, heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's the deepest part of your being. Now, here's what Jesus is saying about your heart. If you want to know the true the spiritual condition of your heart, just follow your treasure map. Not, not the Goonies, okay, but you might be inspired to go watch that today. But but the treasure map of your life, things like your credit card statement, your Venmo account, if you're over 55 and I'm 54, your checkbook, all of those things hold a, no pun intended, treasure trove of information about what you value, what you prioritize, what you love. But not just those things, also your calendar, your schedule, your weekly rhythms, all of those communicate something about what it is that has captured your hearts. And so what Jesus is saying, if you want to know what's cap what, what has captured someone's heart, just follow the treasure in their life. And if someone were to follow the treasure in your life or in my life, what would they find? Now, that's a scary prospect. I mean, that, that's, that's, that, let's be honest, that is unsettling. But here, what I want us to see is that what Jesus has provided us for Oaks is an amazing diagnostic spiritual tool, if we dare use it. If we dare use it. You see, Jesus says, if you want to know what's inside of a person, just watch what he does, watch how he lives, watch his attitude, watch his heart. And, and it's at this point that this spiritual diagnostic serves us. It, it would be what C.S. Lewis calls a severe mercy, right? That, that, that what Jesus is wanting us to do is to be honest before him and before ourselves. Some, some of us, may, maybe our biggest thing today is to be just super honest about what the treasure map in our life looks like. 
And, and, I, and I caution you, don't think so much about what, okay, because anything can be a good gift from God. Think about the why. Why am I doing that? Why is that driving me? Why does that animate me? Where, 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 where is this reflected in my priorities? What's captured my heart? That's what Jesus means, that's what we mean when he says that money is a mirror. We look into it, and let's be honest, the mirror don't lie. And as all of us are getting older, this becomes ever more poignant, right? It's like I, I, I come into church and I, I see a video of myself, and I have to be honest, I am absolutely horrified. And I'm like, Susan, do I really look and sound like that? She's like, oh, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly who you <laughs> So I have to force myself, right, to learn, to grow. I don't like that. I do like this. I don't want to do that anymore. This is what Jesus is offering us with this mirror. Okay, let's, let's keep, let me tell you why this is so important. This gets to our third point. Money as malformation. And, and I'm using that word malformation to transform in a bad way versus what we would call spiritual transformation. Look at verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. Now, lots of discussion in the commentaries about what this exactly means. But when we think about lamp, we think about projecting light, right, outside the body. That's not the way the ancients thought of light. The ancients thought of light as, as, as something that is captured by the eye. So don't think about the eye throwing off light like a lamp. Think about the eye as bringing in light to illuminate the rest of one's being. And here is what Jesus is simply saying. If your eye is bad, it's going to distort everything. Just think about all the, the, the forest fires that are blowing across the northeast right now and, and super terrible air quality. And just looking at these pictures of New York City, it looks like the apocalypse, right? Looks like the zombies have already taken over. And they're coming down this way. I mean, it's like, it's like, this, it's like this, this, this creepy haze. It impacts the way you look at everything. So when Jesus says, if your eye is healthy, what that word means is literally singular. To be singular, singularly minded. And the word, if your eye is bad, that means, literally means evil. It means if your heart is full of evil and greed and avarice and materialism, it's going to affect every other part of you. See, a lot of times we think we can play games with the material portions of our lives. That's just about taxes, Pastor Paul. That's just the government. This is, this is just about business. This doesn't have anything to do with, with my heart or my family or my giving or my priorities. This is just, this, I mean, it's a, it's a dog-eat-dog world out there, Pastor Paul. And when we think that, we are deceived. What Jesus says, if you, if you want a, a window into someone's soul, don't just look at their treasure map. 
But if you want a window into someone's soul, watch how their financial decisions impact every area of their life. You can't confine them. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. But those who desire to be rich, not those who are rich, but those who desire, it means a covetousness, to be rich, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, doesn't say is the root of all evil, it says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. Do you see now why this is such a crucial area for us? Jesus seems to be saying, Paul seems to be saying, the way we steward our lives, our money, our finances, our resources, they actually set our hearts on a particular spiritual trajectory. And so often when you see people who fall away from the faith, or fall into grievous sin, you can oftentimes trace it back to a deception that begins right here. That if I simply do this, it'll be better for me. It'll, it'll, it'll be better for my bottom line. And it's like a cascade of waterfall, terrible-like decisions. One flows right after the other. And you know what? Paul speaks from experience. We read in the Gospels about a man named Demas. He was a worker for Paul. He loved Paul. He served Christ. But at the end of his life, listen to this sad commentary on Demas, 2 Timothy 4. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So oftentimes, apostasy doesn't begin, you've heard me say this so many times, it doesn't begin with, with, a, with, a, with, an aberrant, with an abhorrent theology or a deviant theology. Most of the time, apostasy begins with an abhorrent lifestyle, with a deception, with a series of decisions that multiply on top of one another. So money as a malformation it, it, can, it can literally twist our souls, but, but there is, there's hope in this. Go back to verse 21 for a second. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, now, I want you to know there is actually a reciprocal relationship between your heart and your stuff. Absolutely, your heart shapes your material priorities. But it is also true that your material priorities, in other words, your rhythms with your finances, your giving, your generosity, those also help to shape your heart. You see, there's a reciprocal process. Not only does our heart follow, or not only does our money follow our heart, but our heart follows our money. In other words, money cannot just be a point of malformation, but it can be a point of spiritual transformation. This is why Jesus spends so much time in the Gospels talking about what? Money. Do you realize that next to the kingdom of God, Jesus addresses money more than any other singular topic? He's already gone there in the Sermon on the Mount, right? When he talks about 
almsgivings. And one of the things that can happen that I think, because you may be sitting here thinking about, okay, Pastor Paul, you, you have my attention, but, but where do I go with this? What, what do I do? How do I, how do I move how do I move forward? I don't feel generous. I don't feel like entrusting my stuff to the Lord. Where, where do I go with this? And I think Jesus would tell us in the prayerful practice of spiritual disciplines. Now listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. You could substitute giving in there. Let me, let me do that. Do not waste time bothering whether you are generous with your stuff. Act as if you are. And as soon as you do this, you will find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you are generous, you will presently come to be so. You see, there is a, all of us are creatures of habit. All of us are, have been formed by the, by, by the rhythms and patterns of our life. You've heard me use this example before. If you, if you were to find me on a Saturday afternoon in the fall, you would probably find me watching college football of some sort. I love it. I like it. It's a passion. It's a hobby. Uh, it, it's, it's part of where I formed relationships in my youth. It's part of what we do as a family. It's, it, it, it's, a, it, it's a good thing. But obviously, it can become a, an ultimate thing, a twisted thing. But how did, how did that interest in football start for me? Did I just wake up one morning and thought, I'm really artistic. I think I'll go be interested in football. That's not how that worked. That's not how habits are started. It's started because my family growing up did it. We had a discipline and a rhythm. We'd go to games and travel. And, and, you, and you have the same things, too, in your own life, with your own hobbies, your own interests. And those rhythms in our life are powerful rhythms, which is why, and I don't have the scripture here, but you can go back um, to, to the beginning of chapter 6 and verse 2. It says, thus... When you, when you give to the needy. See, there, there's a command. You don't have to feel generous to be generous. But when you are generous, you will find that God does something supernatural in your life. You will start to grow in your generosity. Do you have rhythms of generosity in your life? And I don't just mean materially, but I mean in, in your service, in your time, in your priorities. Yes, for some of you, it might be giving regularly to the church, but in an, in a, in an affluent church, so oftentimes it might be easier to give money than it is to give time. One of the ways that we want to be generous, I mean, if, if, if it was just about accumulating treasures on earth, we would not allow the Ketchens to leave, right? We would physically bar them from leaving. They're, they're, they're too great an asset. Jacob would fight his way through, but that's a whole other thing, right? You get what I'm saying. Safe families, opening our homes, 
opening our lives, investing in what is truly eternal. All right, last point and we're done. Jesus closes things out and reminds us that all of us have a master. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. Now, this word serve is not a great translation because it literally means, doulos, to be enslaved. And what Jesus is saying is that you cannot be bound or enslaved to two different masters. And in the ancient world, you would have totally understood it. It would have made no sense to say, I have more than one owner. That would have been legally impossible. It would have been practically impossible to have two masters. And what Jesus wants to remind us this morning is that ultimately all of us have one master. The question is, who is it? What is it? Jesus doesn't say, please don't serve both God and money. You can serve either, but just don't serve one or the other. He doesn't say serve God or serve money, make your choice. He doesn't say that. What he says is you can't. You can't. It's an ontological, theological impossibility. What he's pointing us to is that in the deepest part of our souls, who we truly are, we belong to someone or something. Brooks, who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ as your greatest treasure? Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. That is the most fundamental life-transforming identity we can be given. Luther called this the great exchange. Jesus takes our sin, our covetous hearts, and gives us his righteousness. Do, do you know Jesus? Is he your Lord? He's your Savior. If he is, then by the grace of God over your life, and this is all downstream, he will begin to transform your practice. I'm going to close with this. Jesus taught about money all the time. You're very familiar probably with the story of the rich young Mueller. Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at him, he had compassion on him, but knew his heart, said, go sell everything you have. And what does it say he did at the end of that story, that rich young ruler? He walked away, what? Sad. And let me just say that as you, as you run your own heart and soul through this diagnostic this, this, diagnostic this morning, and if you find yourself sad or, 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 or having tinges of regret or remorse, let me just tell you, don't, don't run from that. Don't run from that. That's God's spirit wanting to do a work of grace in you. But I would say there are two kinds of sadness. Paul says there's a sadness called worldly sorrow that leads to death. 
There's a sadness that could, call, that could lead you to say, I'm not ready to give it all up for Jesus. I'm not ready for him to take control of my life. That's a, that's a worldly sorrow. That's a deathly sorrow that leads to death. But by the grace of God, we can say, no, 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 I'm sad. But this is a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Jesus, you are my treasure. And now I pray that you would transform my heart by your grace, that that might be reflected all the more faithfully in my life. Knowing when that happens, that's all by your grace, that for your sake, he who was rich has become poor. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, and as you're just meditating on that word, on this passage, as we prepare to come to the table, ask our leaders to come forward, prepare to serve the elements.